Please open your Bibles uh, to Revelation chapter 3 once again. Today brings us to the final sermon in this brief series through the letters to the churches that we find in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. These seven churches are real, historical, actual churches, churches in the first century. And each one had its own strengths and its own weaknesses. Um, So they receive various instruction and warning and encouragement that Jesus gives them. And while these are literal historical churches, the, the warning and the instruction and the encouragement that's given is timely for every church in every age. That's why each of these um, statements to each of these different churches ends like this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I hope you've been listening. I hope that you're hearing what Christ says, not just to these churches, but to our church today. Last week in looking at the church uh, in Philadelphia, we saw that Jesus offered that church no correction. He offered them no rebuke, He issued them no warning. He only gave them encouragement. It was encouraging to us to see that it really is possible. It actually is possible to be a faithful church, a healthy church, a church that honors Christ. But as we come to the final church, Laodicea, we see that it's also possible to think that you're doing well, to think that you are a healthy church, to think that there is fruit in life, but actually, in reality, be completely spiritually bankrupt. The final letter here includes no affirmation. There there is no commendation for what they're doing well, only a sobering diagnosis and a warning. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter what we think about our church. It matters what Jesus thinks. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. The city of Laodicea, whom Jesus addresses here in these verses, was a prosperous city. They did pretty well for themselves. They were located in the Lycus Valley, 
Uh, and this city was sort of, it was sort of a tri-city area. There was three of these cities clustered together. One was Hierapolis, which is about six miles uh, north of Laodicea. And about 10 miles to the east was the city of Colossae. You're familiar with that city. Paul wrote the letter of Colossians to that church. So there's this little cluster of cities here in this valley. And it's likely that the church here in Laodicea was probably started by Epaphras. He seemed to have an influential ministry in that region. We see him referenced in Colossians 4, where Paul writes that Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you. In verse 13, he says, I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So Epaphras had sort of a regional ministry uh, in this area. And, and like I said, this was a prosperous city. Laodicea was well known for its material wealth. It was actually a major banking center. You could think of it sort of as the Wall Street of its day. Um, as far as industry, they were famous for producing this fine black wool that was highly sought after for making garments and carpets and, and such things. Uh, so there's a lot of industry and trade that went on there. It was also a place that um, was a major center of medicine. They had a large school of medicine there, and they became famous for this local compound that they manufactured uh, that was used as, a, as an ointment or, or a salve for different um, medical issues. And like several of the other cities we've mentioned, they were obviously along this major mail route, which is also a major trade route. So there was a thriving commercial marketplace there. Uh, you had a lot of finance uh, industry stuff going on. You had trade with, with the wool and, and the textiles that were sold there and manufactured there. And you had all this medicine that was taking place. And you know, big pharma has always been you know, a way to make some money. So there was a lot of things going on there um, in the marketplace, and there was a lot of wealth in Laodicea. In fact, they were so wealthy that when a large earthquake struck their region, remember how some of those other cities, they needed bailed out by Rome. Rome came in and funded rebuilding these cities. Well, Laodicea actually turned down the offer of help. Said, no, we can do it by ourselves. They had deep enough pockets that they actually improved their city after the earthquake. So they built back better. Can we say that? Is that, is that fair? And they did it on their own dime. Um, so they were famous for their material wealth. They were independent, self-sufficient, uh, and they were well known for that. But one thing that Laodicea did not have was a good water supply. They did not have access to good drinking water. Colossae, their neighbor, was famous for its icy, cold, and refreshing streams. It was great for, for drinking Excellent. It was clean and clear. Hierapolis, their other neighboring town, was famous for their hot springs. And those are famous and, and well used for therapeutic purposes. Maybe some of you guys have a hot tub. If you're like me, you dream of having a hot tub. It's kind of nice to get in, and it's good for the aching joints and things like that. Hot water is also great for washing things and for cleansing and stuff like that. So Hierapolis had the hot springs, Colossae had the cold springs. But Laodicea had nothing like that. All the water around them was very, very high in calcium carbonate. There was so much mineral deposits in their water that if you drank it, uh, it would make you sick. So Laodicea was dependent on an aqueduct that had been built that piped in water from Hierapolis six miles away. And that was the only way that they could have decent water in their town. 
So every week we, we sort of talk about the background for these cities because all of these details become important when we look at what Jesus has to say to the church. I want to jump right into the middle of this text and see how does Jesus assess this church. We see it in verses 15 through 17. He tells them what they are, and he tells them what they need. And the diagnosis that Jesus gives them is that they are lukewarm. He says in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. He's saying, I wish that you are one or the other. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So the key interpretive question we have to answer in a text like this is, what does it mean to be lukewarm? Um, Many people have often read this and thought, well, this means that they weren't on fire for Jesus. They weren't hot, but they also weren't spiritually cold or resistant. They're just sort of in the middle. They're just sort of average. They're sort of making it through. Um, But I think if we look at this assessment against the background of their historical and even their geographical situation, I think there's something else that's going on here. I don't think Jesus is just saying that they're average, uh, that they're just sort of, you know, coasting through life. When we compare their situation to, uh, of water, um, with the hot water and the cold water that was around them, I think Jesus is saying, when he says, I wish that you were either cold or hot, I don't think he's saying... I wish that you were spiritually cold and antagonistic to the gospel. That would be better than being just sort of average. I think he's saying, I wish that you were cold or hot in the sense that I wish that your ministry, your works, because that's what Jesus is evaluating, says, I know your works. He's saying, I wish your works were refreshing and life-giving, that kind of ministry, like the cold water you get from Colossae, or, or I wish that you had a dynamic spiritual ministry that was healing and, and, and helpful like the hot springs in Hierapolis. But instead of being useful, being cold, or being useful and effective, being hot, you are lukewarm. You're just like your local water supply, and it actually sickens me. When Jesus evaluates their works, he finds them to be useless, just like their water supply. Verse 17 tells us what's behind this lukewarmness. For you say, I am rich and have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The issue here, their spiritual issue, is that they are self-deceived and they don't think they need anything. It's interesting here when you compare it to the church at Sardis. Sardis, Jesus says, was dead but they had a reputation for being alive. Jesus says to Sardis, everybody else thinks that you're doing great, but you're actually not. Well, this church here, it's not so much what everybody else thinks of them, it's what they think of themselves. When they evaluate themselves, they think they are doing great, but they are completely unaware of their true condition. Verse 17, they say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. I think there was actually a theological assumption going on at Laodicea that was incorrect. They assumed that God was blessing them, that God was pleased with them because of their circumstances, because they were so wealthy. And that's a dangerous theology. There's a dangerous kind of theology that says, well, if God is pleased with us, then we'll be rich. 
So if I'm doing really well financially, well, God must obviously be so happy with me because he's poured out all these blessings on me. Or you see it maybe on the flip side negatively. I'm really struggling. I can't pay my bills. I can't keep a job. Is God angry at me? Am I guilty? Am I doing something wrong? We so often equate our our financial status to God's blessing. And we can do that negatively or positively. And I think that these people thought that their wealth and their, their prosperity meant God was obviously very pleased with them. And so they didn't think that they had any needs. Verse 17, I am rich, I have prospered. You can underline this little phrase, and I need nothing. That was their problem. I need nothing. Just like their city needed no help from Rome, this church thought they needed no help from Jesus. And that sort of complacency, that sort of self-sufficiency, that sort of lack of neediness before Christ is spiritually deadly. They were actually spiritually bankrupt despite their material wealth. They were in reality, according to verse 17, wretched. Jesus says, you don't realize that you are wretched. They're in a terrible situation, not a good situation. He says they are pitiable, meaning that there should be grief here instead of smugness. He says that they are actually poor in the way that matters most. Despite how much money they had in the bank, despite all their material wealth, they were lacking things that mattered for eternity. What a contrast to the church at Smyrna, where Jesus said in Revelation 2.9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. The people at Smyrna had nothing in terms of material wealth. But Jesus says, you have true spiritual riches and you are wealthy in the ways that matter. Not only does Jesus say that they are poor and they are blind, in addition to that, they're blind. They're unable to see their true condition. They're ignorant of spiritual realities. He says, you think that you are fine and you need nothing, but you are completely in the dark. You're blind. And on top of all that, he says that they are naked. Now, this might sound strange to our ears to, to say that someone is naked. In our culture, nakedness is almost always associated with sensuality, right? I mean, sex sells. It's commercialized in our culture. But in ancient times, nakedness was a sign of shame. It was shameful. It was a sign of judgment and humiliation. That's what nakedness symbolized. So for a city that was famous for their fine black wool and their clothing, Jesus is telling them, you have no spiritual covering. You think you have it all, but you actually have nothing. You are naked and exposed. It's hard for us to read this description of them being wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. It's hard for us to read that and think that Jesus is speaking to believers. Believers are blessed in Jesus Christ. We've been adopted into his family. We're not wretched. True believers are not pitiable. We rejoice in hope of glory, right? We have joy in Christ and an eternal inheritance. You don't need to feel sorry for us. True believers are not poor. We are eternally rich in Christ. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
True believers are not blind. We've had the eyes of our hearts opened and now God's word is a lamp to our feet and light to our path. True believers are not naked. We've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So when we think about that, it would appear that these people at Laodicea were so spiritually stagnant, so poor, blind, and naked, it makes you wonder if they're truly born again. If this church is not populated and filled with people who profess to know Christ, but they're actually not redeemed. They have all the external trappings of the church. They may even have some things correct doctrinally, but they don't know Christ. They seem to be the kind of people that if they were to have to stand before the judge, they would say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And Jesus would have to answer them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. This description is so stark that it makes us question their spiritual status. So what does Jesus think about a church that claims to have it all together, but in reality has this kind of spiritual condition? Well, this kind of hypocrisy, this kind of false piety, this kind of spiritual smugness makes Jesus nauseous. He says that he will spit them out. He will vomit them out. Just like someone drinking the local water in Laodicea, that lukewarm, tepid water that was so high in, these, in, these, in this mineral concentrate, the body would have rejected that kind of water. And Jesus is saying, because of your spiritual condition, I'm about to reject you and judge you. This is a word of rejection and judgment. And what's so startling here is there's no word of affirmation and there's no word of any remnant. Even the dead church at Sarda, Jesus says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Nevertheless, Jesus says, there are still a few who have not soiled their garments. But Jesus doesn't even mention a remnant here. Of all the seven churches we look at, it appears that this one is absolutely in the worst condition. So what's the solution for a church that is lukewarm, for a church whose works are useless, for a church that, that is so spiritually destitute and lacking that Jesus is about to reject them and judge them? How do we avoid becoming the lukewarm church? How do you, as a Christian, fend off and deal with these tendencies towards lukewarmness that may even be in your heart? Well, here's the key. Here's the main point. We avoid becoming lukewarm by recognizing our neediness for Jesus and depending on him. We have to recognize our need for Christ. We are a needy people who are at every moment completely in need, desperately, of what only Christ can offer. If we lose our sense of neediness, that is spiritually deadly. But the vibrant church, the healthy church, the useful church that is, that is cool and refreshing or, or hot and useful the vibrant church knows its need and comes with its needs to the Savior. So let's look at that together. I want to draw out three ways in which we can rightly look to Jesus in our neediness. First way is this. We must trust Jesus supremely. We must, we must trust Jesus supremely. This is a way that we acknowledge our neediness for Christ. And we depend on him. We trust him supremely. I love how Jesus describes himself in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, 
the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I think Jesus describes himself in this way because it points them to the solution for their need. The people at Laodicea had their own view of things. They thought they were doing great. The problem is that that didn't match Jesus' view of them, and so they needed to trust in Jesus' words. They needed to trust in Jesus' perspective. They needed to trust in his assessment of what they really are and what they really needed. And we can trust Jesus because he's the source of truth. He's the ultimate authority. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness. The word amen is just a transliteration of the Hebrew word for truth. When we say amen or amen to a prayer, what we're saying is, may it be so. We're we're desiring that those things would be counted true. We're affirming it. When When you say amen to someone who's preaching, when we say amen at the end of a song or a prayer, we are... We are saying, yes, that's right, that is true, that is good. We're affirming it. So in Jesus' teaching, you can count this up in the Gospels, it's dozens and dozens of times where Jesus introduces something he's about to say with this statement. He'll say, truly, truly, I say to you. Or in the old King James, verily, verily, I say unto thee, right? We've heard that statement. And that's not just filler words. Jesus is underscoring, doubly so by repetition, the truthfulness of what he is about to say because he is the faithful and true witness. What he says is eternally and perfectly true. You see, Jesus reveals the word of God to man. He is the amen. And he not only reveals God's word, he is God's word. The word was with God. The word was God. And not only that, but Jesus confirms the truthfulness of God's word by fulfilling all of God's promises. He is the amen. He is the yes, the fulfillment to everything that God promises. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, 20, that all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Listen, if Jesus is the amen, if he's the faithful and true witness, then his word is what we need to trust. We must trust Jesus supremely. We trust his judgments, his verdicts. Not what anybody else says about us, but not even what we think of ourselves. It matters what Jesus says. We not only trust him as the source of all truth. We trust him as the source of our provision and our ultimate provider. Not only is he the amen, the faithful and true witness, but he is also the beginning of God's creation. This word beginning can be translated in different ways. It's the word arche. And this doesn't mean that Jesus was created. Jesus is not a created being. No, I think that John is writing something here very similar to what Paul told their neighbors, the Colossians. And I think Colossians was written before this. So as people who likely would have read that letter as it was passed around, this likely would have brought to mind the words of Colossians chapter 1, which says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, or the beginning, of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Why would Jesus bring this up? 
Why would Jesus describe himself to these people as the beginning of God's creation? Well, these people's spiritual stagnancy was evidence that they trusted in themselves and they trusted in their resources, their industry to make or create, their ability to generate wealth. But listen, Jesus is the creator. He is the archae, the source, the origin of all things. There's nothing they have that doesn't find its ultimate source in Christ. And what they truly need, only Jesus can provide. So they need to trust, not in themselves and in their power, they need to trust in Christ and his provision and his power. Listen, it's in setting Jesus to the side. When we ignore his word, when we trust in our own judgments, when we neglect his power and we rely on our own strength, that's when we become spiritually lukewarm. That's when we become useless and ineffective. We need to trust in Jesus supremely, his word and his power. There's a second way in which we need to look to Jesus in our neediness, not only trusting him supremely, but secondly, we need to rely on Jesus exclusively. Rely on Jesus exclusively. Verses 15 through 18. Jesus diagnoses their problem, tells them what's going on, and then look in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus says, listen to my advice. Listen to the counsel I have to offer you. These people were in danger of severe judgment. Jesus has just told them that he is about to spew them out of his mouth. And, and this statement, I counsel you, is almost like a, a very dramatic understatement. I was kind of imagining this week, I'm not saying that Jesus is like a British butler. That's not what I'm saying. But bear with my analogy here. Imagine, you know, maybe a movie or something, and there's a car hurtling towards a cliff, and the British butler leans over and goes, might I counsel you to kindly turn to the right before we die? You know, it's like this very understated, like, I'm going to offer you some advice here. But it's very, very urgent. This counsel is not a suggestion. This counsel is of utmost importance. How does he counsel them? He says, I counsel you to get what you need from me. That's the counsel. That's the counsel. He says, buy from me, verse 18, gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. The problem is not that they wanted things that were valuable and, 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 and brought security and, and wealth and, and glory. It's just that they were looking for it in the wrong place. All the, the gold and, and the money and the resources that they had were temporary. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupts, where thieves break in and steal, where interest rates change and taxes change and sometimes things change and it all goes away. No, Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth cannot corrupt, where, where the thieves can't break in and steal. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus is saying, your heart's in the wrong place. Instead of pursuing wealth in this world, buy from me gold so that you may be truly rich. Five times in the book of Ephesians, Paul speaks of the riches of God's grace that are in Christ, the riches of his glory, the riches that are granted to us through faith. That's what matters most. 
And Jesus is counseling these people, saying, listen, you think you're good, but you don't realize how needy you are. Here's what you need. You need something that only I can offer you. Buy gold from me so that you can be rich in the ways that really matter. They need to look to Jesus to meet their need. Not only are they to buy gold from him, verse 18 secondly tells us that they are to get from him white garments so that they may clothe themselves and the shame of their nakedness may not be seen. Jesus says, listen, you need a covering that only I can provide. I think there's maybe a contrast here between the the fine black wool that they had there in their city and the white garments that Jesus provides. They need something that only Christ can give them. They needed his grace. Grace. When we try to do things for ourselves, when we we try to do it on our own, meet our own needs and, and get ourselves there, that's not grace. That's our works. That's our efforts. Grace is when we receive what only God can do for us. It was grace that clothed Adam and Eve in the garden. Following their sin, they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. They hid themselves and they created these these sad excuses for garments out of fig leaves. But God in his grace, he clothed them. He killed that animal and made, made garments out of skins for them. It was grace that clothed the high priest Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3. There's this amazing imagery of the high priest standing before God, but his garments are filthy. And rather than send him out, rather than judge him, God speaks a word of grace and he clothes him in pure vestments, puts a clean turban on his head. It was grace that clothed the demoniac in the Gospels, this man who had lived a life of of being out of control and naked and cutting himself in the tombs. And when Jesus drives away the demons, the people from the town come and they find this man who had once been possessed by demons and he's sitting at the feet of Jesus and he's clothed and in his right mind. That's grace. And it is grace that clothes you and me as we come to Jesus with our neediness, with our shame, in our sin. It is Christ who clothes us in robes of righteousness. Jesus says, you need clothing that only I can give you. You can't make it yourselves. Instead of being satisfied with the material covering that they could manufacture, they needed the grace that only Jesus could give. They need gold from him. They need clothing from him. He goes on to say, that they need from him salve to anoint their eyes so that they may see. They may have had a large school of medicine. They may have had this special powder that was mixed and sold as a cure-all for all sorts of eye conditions in their region. Jesus says, the healing you need is something only I can give you. The prophets wrote, for instance, Isaiah 35 is one example, that the Messiah would be one who would come and that he would open the eyes of the blind, that he would open the ears of the deaf. Only God's Messiah can do that. That's why when Jesus came, he healed blind people and deaf people. Yes, he loved them, and yes, he wanted to improve their lives. That's true. That's an evidence of his compassion. But even more than that, Jesus was demonstrating in a powerful and physical and visible way that he was God's Messiah, and that what he could do for someone at the spiritual level was grant them sight and give them the ability to hear the voice of God, that Jesus could heal the condition 
of the soul. That's what Jesus does. Jesus does more than just heal physical blindness. I love this description of our own salvation that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a metaphor for our salvation. It's this imagery of of light breaking into a dark soul. That's what the gospel is. That's what Jesus does. He opens the eyes of the spiritually blind so that they see who Jesus is, so they understand the message of grace, and so that they latch onto it and believe it by faith. These people needed spiritual healing, something that no doctor could provide, something that no medicine or salve could fix. They needed what only Jesus could do. Only Jesus can give us sight. Only Jesus can make us truly rich. Only Jesus can clothe us. Which means that if we rely on anything else, if we rely on ourselves and neglect Jesus Christ, we will have none of those things. We will be poor and blind and naked. We will be wretched and pitiable because we don't have what it takes. And we need Christ. We need Christ. And in our neediness, we must trust Jesus supremely and rely on him exclusively. Not looking anywhere else but to Christ, to meet our deepest needs. But there's a third way we can come to Jesus in our neediness. Third, we must welcome him personally. We must welcome Jesus personally. Look in verse 19. It says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I think it may be easy for us to sort of read this this whole passage and sort of read the harsh assessment of the church and hear this ominous statement about Jesus spitting them out and start to think that, man, Jesus just can't stand these people and he wants nothing to do with them. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. It couldn't be farther from the truth. Despite their hypocrisy, despite their self-sufficiency, despite their self-deception, there is so much good news in this passage. There's so much grace here. He hasn't spit them out yet. There's still time to repent. But they must welcome Jesus personally. They need to, first of all, welcome his loving discipline Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I think he's telling them, listen, you guys are nauseating. I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. But the reason I'm coming and reproving you, the reason I'm telling you your need, the reason I'm telling you that you are miserable and wretched and poor and blind and naked, it's not because I hate you. It's because I love you. Jesus is speaking the truth, and it's hard truth. It's truth with a serrated edge, but it's truth that is intended for their good. It's because he loves them, and he's trying to discipline them and bring them to repentance. He's inviting them, calling them to turn from their self-sufficiency and to entrust themselves to Christ and receive grace from him. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Listen, 
we must respond to the love of Christ, even when it comes in the form of discipline. We need to welcome that and embrace it and receive it. We welcome Jesus personally by embracing his discipline, but there's more here that these people are being encouraged to welcome the gracious fellowship of Christ. He gives this famous little word picture here. He says, behold, in verse 19, or verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's Father's Day today, and as I read this text, I can't read this text without going back to my own childhood. My father's a pastor, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard him do this at the end of a sermon. Jesus is knocking. Do you hear him? Will you let him in? It's one of the reasons, Scott, I wanted a wood pulpit, not like a glass, a glass one or a, a metal. You need some wood sometimes. But it takes me back. I've just heard my dad talk about this so often that think about this. The one that we need, the one we should be seeking is seeking us. Isn't that amazing? Despite how bad off this church was, Jesus, and it's startling to see that Jesus is actually outside the church. He's not at home there. He's not present at this church. That's why, that's why their spiritual condition is so serious, that Jesus is on the outside. That's really bad news. But the good news is that Jesus is at the door. And he desires to come in with them and personally fellowship with these people. The the meal symbolizes fellowship and closeness, relationship, reconciliation. Jesus is saying, I'm on the outside right now, but it doesn't have to be that way. And what they need to do is respond personally to Jesus Christ and to welcome his presence, welcome his fellowship. The one that we should be seeking is actually seeking us. That's grace. That's good news. If they will open the door, Jesus promises to come in and to be with them. To be with them. They need to welcome the loving discipline of Christ. They need to personally welcome the fellowship of Christ. And as they do that, they stand to receive one final blessing from Christ. They will welcome his eternal reward. It says in verse 21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. It's this amazing reference. As Jesus ascended back into heaven, he was seated at the right hand of the father. The way the psalmist put it was that the father says to the son, come, sit up here with me until I make your enemies your footstool. There's a future day coming in which the throne of Jesus will be established here on this earth. He will inherit the throne of his father, David. I think the throne of David is different than the throne of God. It's something that's here. It's something that's on this, in this physical realm. And I believe that as Christ returns, he will be established as the king of all kings here on earth. And Jesus gives this amazing promise that just like the father invited the son to sit next to him at his throne, Jesus will invite his saints to come sit with him on his throne when he returns in glory. That's an amazing thing, that if they will humble themselves through repentance, through submitting themselves to the loving discipline of Christ, by acknowledging their need and opening the door and bringing Christ back in, if they will humble themselves before the Lord, that he will exalt them. He will lift them up. 
Listen, it's in welcoming the person and work of Jesus and receiving him by faith that all of our true needs are met and that we're blessed. We're blessed not just with riches and not just with clothing, not just with sight. We're, give some, we're given something even more astounding. We're given Jesus himself, fellowship with Christ, the love of Christ. We get to be with him and reign with Christ. We get Jesus. That's the reward. Personal fellowship with him. At the end of this passage, we go from Jesus being sickened by these people and spewing them out of his mouth to him expressing his love for them, desiring to be with them, and inviting them to come and share in his eternal glory. Listen, this is how we can avoid becoming a lukewarm church. We need to trust Jesus supremely. We need to rely on Jesus exclusively. And we must welcome Jesus himself personally. If you are lukewarm today, if you are spiritually stagnant, if you are self-sufficient and maybe self-deceived, perhaps you're not a true believer even today that I want you to listen to the words of Christ. He says, repent. Repent. That's a common denominator in all these letters. Every church, no matter what their issue is, whatever their issue is, Jesus calls them to repent. To turn away from sin, to turn away from self, to turn away from our own resources, to turn away even from our own judgment of ourselves, to lay all of that aside. And with decisiveness, with zeal, with a wholeheartedness, we are to turn from all of that and give ourselves to Christ and receive from him with open and empty hands by faith what only he can provide. And Jesus promises you, unbeliever, If you repent of your sin and you come to him in faith, that he will give himself to you. He promises you, Christian, that if you will turn from your self-reliance and your pride and your self-righteousness and you will repent of that and come to him with open hands, that he will give himself to you. That instead of experiencing his discipline, you can experience his fellowship, his nearness, and there's joy in that. He offers that to you today. The church that repents and that trusts Christ supremely, that relies on him exclusively and welcomes him personally, that kind of church will be very, very useful. Very, very useful to Christ. He will look at our works and say, you are cold when there is a need of refreshment and life-giving ministry. You are hot, piping hot, when there's a need for, for healing and comfort and cleansing. That kind of church will be useful to Christ. Just like cold water when you need a drink, and just like hot springs when you're sore and exhausted after a long day of work. That kind of church, instead of experiencing judgment or discipline, will have the joy of intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. Christ won't be on the outside knocking to get in. He'll be on the inside, seated at the head of the table, fellowshipping with his saints. I want to ask three brief questions as we conclude that I want each of us to ask ourselves this morning. Three brief questions. You can write these down. Number one, what is it that I'm not realizing? What is it that I may think is fine, but I don't realize my need? 
That's the question I had to ask myself this week as I'm reading through this, just going, oh, wow. They think that everything was good because they don't realize what their need is. I think we just have to pray, Lord, show me if there's something that I don't realize is missing. Show me my need. Protect me from thinking I have it all figured out. Protect me from self-righteousness. Protect me from self-reliance. What is it that I'm not realizing? And if you want to answer that question, here's how you find the answer. You look into the mirror of God's word. God's word tells us who we really are, what we really need. So look in the word. Secondly, you can listen to faithful friends. Listen to godly leaders. Listen to fellow believers that you may not even be good friends with, but they love you enough to tell you what you need to hear. Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You need to listen to people who love you enough to tell you where you're wrong. It's painful. None of us enjoys that. I don't like that. But we need that. Otherwise, how will we realize the things that we don't see? I think we spend way too much effort trying to keep other people away so they don't see things that they might have something to say about. We spend time building walls and fences so that people know not to step across the line and and say something. We need to spend that energy inviting it instead. Look into God's word. Welcome the faithful wounds of a friend. But I think most importantly, pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to bring conviction of sin and unrighteousness. That's what he does. We should pray Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That kind of prayer acknowledges I may have needs that I'm not even realizing, but God, I want to see it. Would you show me? Listen for the Holy Spirit's conviction and then expect to hear his voice as you read the word and as other spirit-filled believers speak into your life. So you need to ask yourself, is there something I don't realize that I need to see? Second question, am I cultivating a sense of neediness? Do you remind yourself on a regular basis of your need for Christ? Many of you do. And one of the reasons you do is that God helps you do that by giving you trials, giving you suffering, giving you weakness. That's actually a gift. It hurts. It's not fun. It can be exhausting. Sometimes we go, how long, O oh Lord? I just want you to come back and take all this away. But that suffering, those thorns in the flesh are a gift because they keep us from thinking that we can do it all without him. But what about those times where you're not suffering, you're not weak, and you think you can do it all? We need to cultivate a sense of neediness. And part of this, I think part of this requires that, that we recognize the difference between what, what we might feel our needs are and what our actual needs are. Um, as someone has said recently, felt needs are often false needs. We think we need higher self-esteem. We think We just need people to appreciate us and understand us. We think we need a certain sort of person to come and and, and do something for us. We think that we just need respect or appreciation or success or to get rid of this debt or to just get past this certain busy season of life. And we think we have all these needs and those aren't the real needs that God's concerned about. Our true needs are needs for Christ, needs that only he can meet. So we need to cultivate a sense of neediness for the right things 
And then make sure we don't forget that. What does it look like to live in the reality of our neediness? What does it look like to live a life that daily is highly aware of our need for Jesus? Well, it looks like repentance and faith. That's what repentance and faith are. It's an expression of need for Christ. Someone who is repentant is someone who knows their need for mercy. I'm turning to Jesus from my sin because I need the cleansing and the forgiveness that only he can offer. Someone who doesn't repent doesn't know how bad they need Jesus. Faith is the same thing. It's recognition of a power that is outside myself, a truth that is outside myself, to believe it and depend on it. It's a recognition of need. That's why the Christian life is one of ongoing repentance and faith, because we never outgrow our need for Jesus Christ and what only he can do. Neediness for Jesus is demonstrated that way. Third question, am I personally responding to Jesus? Not to abstract truths, not to a logical argument, but to the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who existed from eternity past, through whom were created all things, the one who died and rose again, the one who stands today at the right hand of God. Are you personally responding to him? Are you responding to his discipline? Do you receive it and embrace it? Uh, Are you responding to him when he knocks on the door? Will you consciously and explicitly pray to Jesus today and say, Lord Jesus, the door is open, come in. I want you to be at home in my heart and in my life. I want fellowship with you. Will you respond to Jesus' promise of future glory? When he says, those who overcome, those who persevere in their faith will reign with me, do you say, yes, Jesus, I believe that. I thank you for it. Help me to walk in faith all the way to the finish line. Are you reaching for the goal? Are you pressing like Paul for the high prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Are you responding personally to Jesus? I hope that you are. Each one of these letters fixes our attention on him, doesn't it? They all start with this introduction that describes who Jesus is. All of these letters call us to repentance, and they urge us to overcome through our faith. And just like chapter 1 says, there is a blessing that is promised for those who read aloud and hear and keep the words that are written in this book. So I hope that these messages, not just the the letter to um, Laodicea, but I hope that all of them over the last number of weeks will be used by God to clarify for you, to clarify in your own heart and mind what it is that Jesus desires from his church. And I hope that our congregation will heed the instructions found here so that we would be a church that is faithful, a church that is healthy and alive, a church that is vibrant and courageous, a church that is pure both morally and doctrinally, and a church that is highly useful to Jesus Christ as he magnifies his glory in and through us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your grace. I thank you for your love and your willingness to seek us, to reprove and discipline us. Thank you for your desire to fellowship with us. It's astounding that you would set aside the glory of heaven and take on flesh to redeem those whom you love. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would always be at home in this church, that you would never be relegated to the outside because we think we have it figured out and we have 
enough resources and enough strength and enough intelligence and enough savvy to sort of do all this on our own. I pray, God, that you would give us a, a sense of neediness so that we might never lose sight of Christ. So, Lord, be at home among us. Draw near to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.